Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 78. Trouble was not so much brewing as fermenting on the Eastern Cape frontier, as we heard last episode. The British were aware that Antlambe and his war doctor, Ngale, had gathered troops ready to invade the Albany region, the Zurfeld, and Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Wilshire, or Tiger Tom, as he was known, had been dispatched from the Cape with reinforcements, and he had arrived in Grahamstown. Meanwhile, in Graf Reinet, Landrost Andri Stockenström had raised a large commander from amongst the Boers on the frontier. As you're going to hear later, they couldn't help the people of Grahamstown. They were too far away. But it was shortly after this that the British were told that the Kosa warriors had disappeared. What Ingele and Entlambi had done was to mass 10,000 men in the impenetrable Fish River ravines not far from Grahamstown in preparation for something truly audacious. Some say it was more like 6,000 warriors, but most historians believe it was more like 10,000, so we'll stick to that number. Remember, this was a pan Kosa army, including warriors from Entlambi's Amararabi, as well as the long-suffering people of the Zurfeld, the Amakunukwebe people of Patu, the son of Tungwa. Governor Lord Charles Somerset's new strategy was to force the Amakosa east of the Kaiskama River. This was a leap further east of the fish. The land between the fish and Kaiskama rivers is quite narrow and was around 30 miles wide, narrowing to around 7 miles in places. Ingrika, Inklambe and Ingrale all lived within this area. Lieutenant Colonel Wilshire had an advantage over his predecessor, Colonel Brereton, when it came to fighting on this landscape. Brereton had arrived in the Cape from the fever-ridden swamps of the West African coast, while Wilshire had arrived from the peninsula campaign against Napoleon. The climate and terrain of South Africa was actually quite similar to the Spanish and Portuguese landscape he knew so well. Just before Nklambe's men gathered in the depths of the Fish River bush, Wilshire had arrived in Grahamstown with a contingent of a couple of hundred men. As a member of the 38th Regiment's Light Infantry Company, Wilshire's training and discipline was second to none, and the Light Rifle Regiment had cut its teeth in the wars of the 18th century, particularly the war in North America against the French. Wilshire had taken note of what British General Wolfe had done in fighting the French and their first people indigenous allies. Wolfe had realised that his men were weighed down by the heavy European uniforms in the bush and forests and mountains of North America, stumbling through rough country while the French and their Indian allies ran circles around them. So the light infantry came into being, a small corps of hand-picked soldiers who moved quickly and quietly and who didn't wait for orders but used their own initiative, a bit like how the Kosa fought and the Boers. Furthermore, this British unit in the Eastern Cape was travelling light, their training was like colonial rangers rather than the old-fashioned, slow-moving infantry of the British past. The fastest lines of communication at that time was along the coast between the Cape and Algoa Bay. They had to rely on this route for provisions, their wheat, their flour, biscuit, artillery, ammunition and food for the horses. Wilshire knew that the rugged country around Grahamstown had very little food for scavenging and the farms had already been stripped bare anyway, worsened by a drought. There was also a problem with horse sickness which killed hundreds of animals. The surviving beasts were nibbling on the grass around Grahamstown, but there wasn't much of that either. Wilshire was hoping to march out of Grahamstown on the 1st of May 1819. Little did he know that the Tkosa were going to change his plans fundamentally. That's because on the 21st of April, a Tkosa messenger arrived from Inkaeli, the war doctor, 
who said that he would breakfast in Grahamstown with Wilshire the next day. That was a bit of a shock, and shows how incredibly confident Ngleli was. Ngleli had morphed from the eccentric man of God into a vengeful man of what he saw as his separate God, the God of black people. He'd converted from John the Baptist into a Koza unifying prophet who deployed Koza traditions mixed with Christian sentiment. This conversion was summed up, as Noel Mostad writes in his book Frontiers, by one of Wilshire's junior officers, a 22-year-old ensign called Charles Stretch, who wrote that, The whole soul of the warrior prophet seems to have been set on revenging the aggressions of the Christians and emancipating his country from their arrogant control. You know by now that in Ngleri's God, he called Mdaladipu, who would smite the God of the whites, who Ngleri called Tiko, and the colonials would then be pushed into the sea. It was no longer the causal way to bow before God, he said, but rather to rise up, to enjoy life and dance, make love, multiply and fill the earth. Ngleri began to smear his body with red ochre, the traditional ritual that the Khoi and the Amakosa followed, but that the missionaries had been preaching against. And for Ngleli, nothing was more symbolic in its invasion of the Koza country than Grahamstown. It was like a cancer on his felt. He wanted it destroyed. Nothing quite like this had been attempted by the Koza. Yes, they'd attacked farms and burned crops, ambushed British patrols in the Albany thickets, raided cattle and threatened Cape Town. But attacking an entire town was a novel tactic. No one else but Ngleli or Makanda, as he was formerly known, could have envisaged this. He also had broad support by now of most of the Kosa, and Tlambi was behind him, so too Tungwa San Peku, who was itching to avenge his father. Remember, the old man was shot out of hand by Khoi and Boer commando troops in the previous wars. Bygones are never bygones when you're killing someone's father. These revenge killings were going to take on a life or a death of their own over the decades. Ngele had also been reinforced by Koikoi, who had sought refuge amongst the Koza, and there were deserters from the British army fighting for them as well. These soldiers had decanted from the Cape and included one of the Royal African Corps sergeants of the line, a West African who was now a minor Koza chief, and he had advised Ngele on the best possible way to fight these Europeans how to use their firearms, and how their military tactics worked. While some of the Khoza were armed with muskets, most were equipped with their traditional assegais. The British were armed with field guns and muskets bristling with bayonets. Dama Khoza could throw the assegais around 50 metres quite accurately, which is about as far as a musket fires accurately as well. Just a small note. The Khoza carried around half a dozen of their throwing spears and wielded them with what the British called excessive skill, and yet the total amount of firepower was always in favour of the colonials. However, given the mobility and speed of Khoza warriors, it wasn't that simple, not just a matter of Africans armed with spears facing Europeans with guns. That's kind of insulting, and a misreading of how well the Khoza could fight. Ngele also knew that he had overwhelming superiority in numbers. There were only 350 soldiers and armed civilians in Grahamstown. The British had field guns, which the Amakosa did not, and these were going to wreak havoc in the coming battle. Ngele was calculating that in the initial rush, 
Some of his men would be mowed down, but enough would survive to break the hafts of their spears, which they then used as close-quarter killing weapons, as you know. Then they'd outfight the smaller number of British, and victory would be certain. By the 19th of April, 1819, Ngaile had moved 10,000 soldiers into the thick bush of the great Fish River Valley, around 15 miles from Grahamstown. These men were going to march that distance on the 22nd, then commence battle. British patrols somehow failed to spot the massed ranks of Koza warriors, a miracle in itself if you consider how many there were. Ngale was waiting for a messenger called Nguka. He was working with Nklambe and Ngale's sworn enemy Nguka, but had swapped sides and had been passing on information to the war doctor. A fifth column was inside the British system. Neither the British nor Nguka trusted him fully, however, and for good reason, as it appeared. Nguka arrived in Grahamstown on the 19th of August with a task in mind. Ngale wanted him to try and get Wilshire to decrease his military presence in the town, and so he told the British Lieutenant Colonel that he had heard noises towards the coast on the way to what is now Bathurst. That was actually almost directly opposite where Ngale's forces were huddled waiting for their attack. Wilshire immediately dispatched a 100-man patrol of the 38th's Light Infantry Company to sweep the countryside down to the coast, and two days later, while they continued a rather fruitless search, Ngale was informed that they were too far away to help. Then he sent his famous message to Wilshire, inviting him to breakfast. Left behind in Grahamstein were 350 defenders, comprising 45 men of the 38th Regiment, 135 of the Royal African Corps, 120 Khoi from the Cape Corps, a detachment of artillery with only five cannon and a couple of dozen armed settlers, all commanded by Wilshire. It's amazing that Ngale had warned Wilshire of his plans. It shows you how confident the war doctor was. And so, on the morning of the 22nd, Ngale exhorted his 10,000 men to kill the colonials so that their ancestors would rise from the graves. He also said the bullets would miss. Some say he mentioned they'd turn to water, although oral history refutes this. Then Ngale took the lead and marched his army the 15 miles to the high ground on the eastern perimeter of Grahamstown. That area is now known as Makana's Corp, Makana's Hill. Waiting in town was Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Wilshire, who appeared exceedingly nonchalant that morning. Some say he appeared almost careless and had paid no heed to Ngale's warning about breakfast, thinking it was a ruse. But at around 10 a.m., he heard that the Koza raiders had tried to seize cattle grazing above Grahamstown. He set off in pursuit, still totally unaware of the size of the Koza army that was marching towards him. Wilshire had been drawn into an ambush and was shocked when he crested the eastern ridge to see thousands of Koza who immediately began to pursue him, shouting their battle cries as they advanced. Wilshire sent a messenger to alert the garrison, then, to his credit, tried to draw the advancing Corsa army away from the settlement in a kind of courageous last stand. However, the Corsa were far too well drilled to take that kind of bait and continued moving swiftly towards the town, so he broke off and rode back into town himself. He fully expected to be overrun in minutes, but Ngale wanted everything to be done exactly right, so instead he had the warriors form up on the hill for full effect. Wilshire made it back to town and dismounted at the village parade ground, then looked back up the slopes where the famous township now exists, 
Makana's Kop. There he saw thousands of Khoza spreading out along the skyline, all marching to predetermined positions. This was not going to be a chaotic raid into the town. This was a carefully planned assault that was going to surprise the British by its orderliness. But perhaps chaos was the better option, as you're going to hear. The time was a few minutes to midday. It was a sunny, bright autumn day. No wind. Sounds could be heard far and wide. By now the Amakosa were silent on the hilltop, and they continued massing there for well over an hour, striking terror into the residents as they saw the massive army gathering. The colonials were truly startled by how the Amakosa paraded. It looked like the British army on the hill, and Wilshire was muttering about how the villainous West African sergeant and the other deserters had obviously trained these men. There was another similarity. The British may have been the light infantry, but they were still dressed in their famous red tunics. And on the hill, the Amakosa had sheathed themselves from head to foot in red ochre, their war paint. There it is again, folks. The irony of our history right there. It was red colonial against red Khoza. If you were standing on the hill on the 22nd of April 1819 and looking down into the town, it would have appeared as a small village. There were 30 houses or so along three wide main wagon streets straddled by grass, and it had a military garrison that had many weaknesses. There was no fort, for example. In fact, there weren't any fortifications. On the eastern edge, a small stream flowed, and its banks are sloped. This stream can be crossed merely by a single leap, and yet the defenders regarded this as a main forward line of defence. Above the stream was the largest building in town, the Khoikhoi Barracks. The women and children had fled into this building as the alarm sounded at midday. They would be defended by 60 men of the Royal African Corps. It was Nghele's decision to form up his men for over an hour that gave Wilshire an opportunity to deploy his troops in turn. He used the slope from the village to the stream as one of his main positions, placing the field guns above the men who were sent to the townside bank. The guns would fire over his men and directly into the attacking Khoza, creating maximum havoc, all the more so because the guns were loaded with shrapnel shell. This was a terrible round invented in 1784 by Lieutenant Henry Shrapnel of the Royal Artillery a hollow iron ball containing bullets with an explosive charge designed to go off and throw shrapnel over many yards. Ngheli watched the guns deploy. He'd set up his own forces into four distinct divisions. A thousand men would remain on the plains above Grahamstown. They were to keep an eye out for the light infantry patrol still searching for Ngheli somewhere along the coast. Two other main divisions, making up around 5,000 warriors, one under Mdushani, who was Nslambe's warlike son, and the other under Kobe, a Kurnukwebe chief, would assault the town directly, while Ngele would lead a fourth smaller division aimed at the east barracks, the women and children, and the 60 men of the Royal African Corps. It must be said that very few of the defenders at this moment thought they had any hope. Here was a huge Amakosa army, led by a charismatic and effective war doctor, arraigned and organized and disciplined. Wilshire, however, was planning to use his men's capacity to fire precision volleys in ranks. First the front fires, 
then kneels down and loads as the rear line fires, then they would kneel and load while the front stands again and fires, and so on. Their brass-mounted smooth-bore muskets were deadly at 50 yards, but over 100, the pre-rifled smooth barrels meant the ball ended up nowhere near where it was intended. The brown best musket was efficient enough in the hands of a highly trained soldier, designed to cope with cavalry charges, and of course, the Amakosa attack was going to resemble exactly that situation. Then, like all good soldiers who are in a weaker position, Wilshire made the first move, seeking to control the initiative. It was his only hope. He advanced the first line of infantry across the stream heading towards the Kosa, who were now in distant musket range. Wilshire thought Ingleda would bring his main force into bear, and then he'd open fire with his artillery. At first, Ingleda didn't respond, but soon, and on a signal, the ranks of Amakosa bounded down the hill with what the British called a terrible yell, and spread out as they descended. Wilshire's infantry fired, then began moving backwards in an orderly fashion across the stream as his artillery bombarded. The first fusillade was devastating, but the Amakosa kept coming, despite some clearly being shocked by the effect of Lieutenant Shrapnel. It wasn't just the noise and the blood. The flashes of the guns appeared to create a shift in the momentum. The warriors carried their spears in the right hand, but threw up their left hands or cloaks to cover their eyes as the guns blasted. The British infantry found that they then offered a better target. The Amakosa warriors seemed to hesitate at the guns' flashes, and at the same time, this affected their throwing skills, and most of the spears missed or fell short. But the first rush of warriors made it over the stream almost to the artillery. Some managed to begin outflanking the artillery and Wilshire's infantry. A disaster was looming. And it was almost a miracle, said some afterwards. What happened next? A Khoikhoi big game hunter called Busak, who had converted to Christianity at the small Theopolis mission station, suddenly appeared on the slopes and rode into battle. He wasn't alone. He'd brought 130 men. These were Khoi and mixed-race hunters, a clan, if you like, and they were what some called the finest marksmen in the Cape. Busak recognized some of the Amakosa leaders amongst the warriors and began picking them off with deadly accuracy, and that had an immediate effect. Ngleli, meanwhile, had advanced to the barracks and knew that this position was the strongest. It had a commanding view of the town below. His warriors fought their way into the barracks, overrunning the hospital section, and then they became aware of Busak and the marksmen, and some of his men began to turn and run. There is a story told of a wife of one of the British soldiers called Elizabeth Salt, who reportedly walked through the Amakosa warriors unscathed as she carried what looked like a baby, but was in fact a bundle containing gunpowder for the defenders. The warriors did not kill her, despite being in the midst of battle lust, which is remarkable. Ngleli tried to marshal his warriors once more, but by now the British buglers were blowing hard, calling for an advance, and the main Amakosa regiments facing the artillery began to retreat, pursued by the British. Wilshire was aware that these troops were becoming scattered and maybe cut off, and the buglers sounded the call for the infantry to return to their positions. Then the battle was over. It had been a hard-fought five-hour battle, and bodies of the Tosa were strewn thickly across the side of Makana's Kup. The artillery shrapnel had caused terrible injuries. Blood was scattered across the felt. 
Some had stuffed grass into their wounds, but bled to death as they lay. Many of the warriors were found along what is known as Cowie Ditch. The Cowie River flows through the town from its source in the hills above Grahamstown. It's still called Egazini, the place of blood. And when water shortages hit the town, which unfortunately they do often these days, the residents make their way to the source of Egazini to fill their containers. Back in 1819, many of the wounded were helped away by their comrades, which was an old Amakosa tradition. Others dragged themselves into the bush over the hill, only to be killed and eaten by wild animals. Three of Ntlambi's sons died. And Nguka, the messenger who'd played a double game, was caught trying to escape with some of Ntlambi's warriors. Wilshire managed to stop a soldier from shooting him in cold blood, but as he turned away, a second soldier walked up to Nguka and gunned him down. Remarkably, only three British soldiers had died, including an officer. Five were wounded. While this appears to be a clear-cut case of underarmed Africans fighting ferociously against gun-toting Europeans, it's not that simple. This was a near-run thing, as Captain W. Harding wrote later. And he should know he'd fought in Egypt, at Corona in Spain, and at Walcheren in Holland, in Sicily, and Malta, and he called the Battle of Grahamstown the most spirited of his experience. Ngale escaped, heading towards the Fish River. Wilshire and his officers then wondered, why did he not attack at night? Ngale chose midday, and had spent 90 minutes drawing up his 10,000 men into position, instead of using speed and mobility to overcome the British. Ngale's men said later, he'd scorned the idea of lurking around at night like an evil force. His soldiers were of the light. They were not witches. They fought during the day. They were fighting a war of honor, not slinking around like hyenas. Many of the Kosa warriors had taken their wives and children to the battle and left them on the hill to watch, carrying pots and mats. They were so sure of victory. These escaped into the Fish River fastness. But the result was lopsided. Artillery and rapid discipline musket fire won the day. Wilshire reported after the battle that 150 Kosa had been counted dead. A week later, Cape Town newspapers reported 500 dead. Ten years later, Grahamstown settler Thomas Pringle said it was 1,400, which later turned into 2,000. That's disinformation for you. However, there's no question of this battle's significance, which historians point out shattered Amat Kosa morale. The largest army they'd ever put together in history had been defeated by a few hundred colonial troops. The colonial response to this near-run thing was going to be violent. And yet, as you'll hear next episode, the authorities were to treat Ngrele with a great deal of respect and even deference when they caught up with him. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time and helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, Pambili.